Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we welcome 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello, hello. And we're also joined by freelance writer, Fraser Brown. Hello. So, this week, our topic comes to us via our monthly Patreon backer poll, which you can learn more about at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, we put the lesser, and I'm using air quotes around around lesser, we put the lesser Total War games up for a vote to see which would get the spotlight this month. Uh, and the result was a clear win for Medieval 2, which I have to admit kind of surprised me, because it sometimes feels like the Total War game that inspires the least reaction among fans of the series. Now, I actually like it a lot, and we'll get to that in a bit, but I'm curious if anyone else like views its place in the Total War canon uh, similarly to me, right? I always sort of felt it was overshadowed. It, it stood in Rome's shadow a little too much and was maybe still too close to Medieval 1 to really, like, find its own identity uh, within the series. Uh, what, what, what do you guys think? It's kind of, like, almost my favorite of the old ones, even though Rome <laughs> has this, you know, important spot. Uh, and it will always be, even with all its flaws... It Despite will, the fact it's a bad game. It yeah. will always be probably my actual favorite but medieval 2 is actually the one that i spent the most time playing uh i think it's because when it when it launched which would be like almost like well over 10 years ago um i had like i'd failed an outside course at uni i don't know how to describe them to to people from across the atlantic it's kind of like the courses you do that aren't your major I guess. And I'd, I'd, okay. I'd failed this, this course by not going to an exam because I was asleep and sleeping is lovely. Um, and they made me reset this, this single course. So I had this whole year of uni where I had one course to take um, and I didn't have much to do. So in, I think, was it November maybe? Medieval 2 comes out. I've got so much free time and I just, just got obsessed with it. Uh, every waking moment spent with it. And I just have so many fond memories of it that I I can't really remove those memories. And, and almost, it's almost hard to think about it critically because I loved it so much for such a, a long period of time. And then the, the expansion came along and I could be very Scottish, which is very nice um, in, in the Britannia campaign. So yeah, I, I get that it maybe doesn't, get the reaction that, say, Rome does, uh, which I think is probably the one that most people consider their favorite, even though you don't really like it, Rob. But Medieval has a lot of the same things that people did like about Rome, but it's a little bit more polished. Um, it looks a lot better. I'm not sure about you guys, but when I was, I've been playing a bunch uh, today, and I was like, damn, this still looks really good. At least the battles, the UI is, is ugly as sin, but the actual, uh, the fights still look amazing. It's kind of hard to believe that it's getting so long in the tooth when they look that striking. And also you've got the, the variety of, of um, the, the cosmetic variety of the units. Like one unit has a lot of different blokes in it. You've got the guy with the beard. You've got the guy with the slightly different colored armor. Right. You, you don't have Rome's clone trooper exactly. armies, which like didn't age well. Uh, it's, it's now like really glaring to see them all sort of like identically modeled and like animation synced. Um. And yeah, Medieval starts to introduce that that sort of patchwork look of Medieval Army, which you kind of have to, right? Yeah. Like, these are not modern professional armies. It does need to kind of look like a bunch of guys wearing, like, secondhand hockey gear. 
And there's, there's all this discrete stuff going on within individual units that, that, that are largely cosmetic. You know, they've got, so you've got their appearance, but you've also got the little jewels that they have, which like the animation range was, was much greater in Medieval 2 than it, than it was in Rome. So everything just looks surprisingly awesome still uh, over a decade later. So I was quite taken aback by that. Yeah, I think Medieval 2 is, you know, it's, it's stuck in a weird spot, right, in Total War history. You have, you know, Rome comes out and it introduces, you know, the 3D terrain. It's no longer provinces, it's this whole terrain map, you move your armies along uh, for good or for ill. It has, you know, more, it has the, introduces all that, the great mission stuff and earning the favor of different groups. And then after Medieval 2, you get Empire, which is, you know, the first colossal misfire uh, in the Total War series, and boy, were there more of those to come. Um, so Medieval 2 is kind of, it is the game that is following on Rome, and is, which I think is great, and is certainly a landmark in the series, and before the, well, we don't know what to do with guns game of Empire, um, so it's, it is kind of forgotten, and I think it's kind of a shame. Uh, though I have a lot, a lot of problems with Medieval 2 because it does, I think, try to do too much in the end. Uh, but Fraser's right that it's an absolutely glorious uh, game to look at. It is it, The knights never look quite like the knights in your imagination on a charge. They still look a little bit, you know, cumbersome, but, you know, their horses carrying a guy in a steel suit. It's, they're supposed to look a bit cumbersome. Um, you know, it has all the traditional problems of the Total War games with as long as everything's a fire arrow, you're going to do just fine. Um, but, you know, the the great variety of siege weapons and the introduced introduction of cannon and early firearms in the late game um, and some really, really great expansions. Uh, the America's expansion is outstanding. The Britannia expansion, I think, is one of the great little cockpits in Total War uh, design. Um, so it is, you know... Going back to what I forgot how fond I was of the game, though I understand why a lot of people might forget it. <laughs> yeah, I think going back to it, the hardest thing about going back to it is that it's easy to not have realized how much more playable the more recent iterations are than those older ones. Like, you know, it's a, it's a lot of small refinements. Like, there was never there was never one moment where they completely like overturned the UI and made it feel completely differently. But at this point, we're several games removed from Medieval 2, and just all the sort of command conventions that exist have existed in the last couple games, uh, I've sort of internalized. And then going back to a game that doesn't have these, uh, particularly regarding like camera control, makes oh, God, Medieval yeah. 2 feel like it's fighting me at every step. Like, I, like I'm playing it, and I'm like, why do you feel so... It's It's like... You know, you, you, you sort of go back to your beloved, like, beater car that you had in high school or something like that, and you realize, like, oh, man, this thing was just a complete piece of garbage. Like, you had to, you had to sort of fight it uh, to, do, to do the simplest stuff. That's kind of where Medieval is at. Uh, but once I get past that, like you, Fraser, I've been sort of surprised at uh, how well it, it does hold up. I, I think something else that contributes to the fact that it still looks surprisingly great is that um, I think medieval two has an aesthetic in a way that maybe Rome didn't like 
Rome, the graphics engine was such a leap forward and such a change from everything they'd done prior to that that it's actually very sort of it's a very flat looking game uh, in a lot of ways, right? Like the lighting is all very bright. It's a, it's a little bit like uh, cartoony. Um, the, you know, the models are good, but there's just not like there's not a lot of artistry around it. It's 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 a powerful engine and some you know d- detailed units uh, for the time. But it doesn't really have, like, a look it's striving for. Medieval feels kind of, like, moody and dark and sinister at times in ways that, like, a medieval game should, right? Like, the skyboxes are are prettier. Um, you know, the terrain looks a little more dramatic. Forests are sort of more menacing. Um, and I think that contributes to this feeling of these battles are... Uh, events and they're dramatic in a way that they weren't in in rome necessarily and they're they're arresting in a way uh that that you know earlier games maybe had not been i feel like the tone is something that attila really built on there i think there's like a similarity in tone between those two games uh something it's a little bit dirtier and um i don't like it's just it feels less like a game and more like a horrible war uh, and I, I think that it helps that you've got all these like dirty peasants with pitchforks uh, being trampled by knights. Uh, yeah, actually, it does call attention to that sort of, um, you know, the tears of the medieval battlefield element, right? Like peasant units, like levy units, look weak. They look terrible. They're just these poor bastards in like burlap sacks with, like, pitchforks and hedge trimmers uh, in some cases. Even the more advanced units, uh, you know, when, you're, when you're doing, like, citizen militia and stuff, they're still, like, they still look pretty far removed from your men-at-arms and your professional soldiers and your mounted and dismounted knights, um, you know, which are, you know, gleaming armor, um, look heavy, look weighty, look polished, uh, and it does sort of call attention to the fact that, like, when those A tier units get in among the B tier, it's going to get real ugly for those for those uh, citizen <laughs> units. I kind of wish that the colors popped a bit more, though. It is, you know, very gray and very brown and very somber. But I kind of wish with the bigger units that the heraldry popped a little bit more, that it was, you know, shinier, that it was a little more colorful. That the, the dyes are very subdued. Um, I kind of wish it was a little bit brighter at times. It is a it is a bit muted, like when you've got the the knights and they they, you think that the colors would seem brighter and then it's all a little faded. But I also quite like that because it makes it feel like this is you know they've been on a long campaign. That what might have started off as as shiny armor. Yeah. I mean, and but the problem is, but I just I just I just hired these guys. They shouldn't <laughs> yeah. be wearing really drab yellow out of the barracks. And and also uh, it does create I think a readability issue at times. Like once and and may, again maybe that's to the game's benefit in some ways of like hey the medieval battlefield is crazy and hard to command. Cool, but at the same time, like once there's a major melee happening in the center of the two lines where they meet, I no longer have any idea whose push is succeeding, right? Like, it, it, it oftentimes looks like, okay, there's a lot of... The dun-colored guys are really going ham on the silvery, dull gray guys. Um, maybe that's good? I don't know. <laughs> it's worse with the peasants, because it just looks like a giant orgy filled with a bunch of sacks of potatoes. Um, it just does. It's so illegible. 
Man, some of the some of the facial uh, textures are not great either. Like so, some of these characters really do look like uh, uh, the zombies from like System Shock Two. You know, where it's just yeah, they are like potato people in uniform, and it's like, okay, cool. This is a little bit uh, Python esque. Uh, so, you know, Troy, you alluded to it earlier, and I think this is actually one of the reasons this secretly ends up being one of uh, my favorite Total War games. It's called Medieval 2. It is, sure. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like secretly it's an early Renaissance Medieval Total War like Total War game. Like, it gets so far into the evolution of gunpowder weapons and the increasing role those play on the battlefield, that by the end game, melee units are increasingly being superseded by, like, heavy deployment of, like, not quite modern, but, like, definitely you can start, you can start to see uh, the, the Renaissance army taking shape. You can start to see what's going to be happening in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, in this game, and I think that's really cool. Like this is this isn't a game where like you just progress up to like bigger and heavier, uh, higher tech uh, versions of the same units you, units you've been entire, using the entire game. In medieval, as you're attacking up, as you're advancing, the way your army feels and controls and how you have to employ it also changes radically. And I'm not sure, maybe uh, the Shogun Two uh, Fall of the Samurai campaign. Uh, accomplishes something similar, but I don't think there's many other total wars that capture that uh, dynamism of warfare in such a period of like technological and social change. The game cover about 500 years. It goes from you know 10 something to 15 something, um, all the way through the campaign. And as you're upgrading your units and building your new buildings and your structures, you hit. You're looking for certain landmarks all the way through. You start with you know crappy guys on horseback and crappy guys in burlap sacks and you're just waiting to get some guys in armor that's your thing you want to get good guys in mail with big pointy sticks and guys in plate armor if you can and that's your next big step and then you're then it's you want longbows and crossbowmen you want the really good missile weapons to take these guys down then you want you know better faster infantry or dismounted knights or men-at-arms upgrading the armor and then you get to well the way to stop that is Get lots of guns, get cannon, uh, get early hand cannons, early muskets, and you have this progression of, you know, from the high, through the high Middle Ages up to the Renaissance, up through the Age of Discovery, and you do have these nice little landmarks built that make sense in an historic way, but they really don't in the Rome series. I mean, in the Rome series, Legion, better Legion. Even better, shinier legion. The urban cohort. This? What's an urban cohort? Don't worry about it. We promise. This is totally historical. Yeah. The Romans yeah. had super soldiers. You just never heard about it. As far as I know, the, 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 the urban cohort, the, those are the black ones, right? Um, <laughs> sorry, it was a bad joke. Uh, but yeah, it's there's none of this. All the other, most of the other Total War games, you don't have this. Empire, you know kind of tried to get this, but it was in such a small time frame. You just have, you know, better muskets. You never get to, you know, really, really good rifles. You have better artillery and then better cavalry. But you don't have the landmarks of technology of this huge progression and revolution in total war that was in total war, in warfare that was going through this period. And through it all, you also have, you know, the 
the Battle of Fortresses, you know, upgrading, getting better walls and bigger walls, um, and then having to find artillery that will take these down. Um, you can't just wait out sieges as easily because it takes longer and takes more battle points to build your siege towers and your ladders to push through a siege. And while you're waiting, your enemy is just building up an army to take you out. Um, so you have all of this on the defensive side as well. And there, so there really is a nice progression you get uh, in Medieval 2 that you don't get in the other games. And I think the fact that the Americas expansion, um, I think it was the first expansion. I mean, this is set at the very end of the Medieval era. You don't even think of it as Medieval, you know, fighting Aztecs and Inca. We think of that as, you know, the beginning of modernity. That's, you know, after Columbus. It's the modern era. We don't think of it as the end of the Medieval era, though you can certainly make a case for that. I think uh, Medieval 2 tries to do that, I think, quite effectively, <coughs> because in those... You know, in those uh, games, you know, the Spanish, they can't just show up with a thousand musketeers because that's not how it happened. You get a few of them and they're expensive, but you're relying heavily on allied troops and there's still going to be a lot of hand-to-hand combat. It's still very, very medieval in many ways, but you do have this progression. Uh, and I think you're right to point that out, Rob. This, that really separates this game from the other Total War games. And I think... Even from the first medieval, but you still get that progression all the way through. I don't think it. I don't think it felt. I don't think it felt as market as it does here. No, it absolutely I think it's didn't. partly be, because of the way they do these tiers of units uh, and tiers of walls and how you know upgrades and there's just. I think it, 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 the signposts are there for you here that they really aren't in the other series. Yeah, I think so. Medieval one. Like, taking gunpowder as a particular example, in Medieval 1, it does start to get, it starts to point a little bit in this direction, but basically only via one unit, uh, as best as I can recall, and that is the uh, Demi-Culverin, which in that game basically functions like your classic smoothbore field artillery. I think think it can even move around, not sure. Um, A lot of the artillery in that game is fixed position, but the Demi-Culverin might be able to. Um... But as a fire rate, so you can use it like artillery in in a lot of traditional games. But beyond that, like you know, hand like handguns, uh, muskets don't really play a major role in that game because medieval one kind of adopts the attitude that it's all about high Middle Ages warfare. It, it it's it's warfare almost as the knights would have wished it, right? Like guys in heavy armor rule that battlefield. Uh, from beginning to end. Um, the only place it actually starts to really work against you in that in that game is probably when you're starting to fight in uh, the Holy Land, which is actually really good, right? Like Medi- Medieval 1, I would say, maybe has a better feel of like the Crusades uh, and, and how European armies just kind of uh, went off to die uh, once they got, got out into the desert. But it doesn't... It, it, uh, it doesn't capture that that evolution that arms race those those military revolutions uh that are happening in the period and medieval 2 by both expanding its its focus i think it covers a slightly longer period and especially by like introducing those signposts um does give you a sense of how like vibrant this era is do you think it makes up for, and I, I wonder if this was what Creative Assembly were, were trying to do, that the fact that actually the different factions 
don't have as much variety as they did in Rome, where, you know, especially, you know, barbarians, but, but just across the board, the, the factions were all pretty distinct. But with Medieval 2, they... There is a lot of similarities. However, within them, they have so much room to grow. So within one faction, there's so much development that can happen, uh, much more so than, than in Rome. But across the board, there are le there's less. Um, I can't, and I can't, at first, that was a little bit disappointing. But as you get into the late game and you see the game transform and evolve and start getting uh, into the kind of the gunpowder era, things become dramatically different. I mean, there are small distinctions. I mean, the, each, they aren't identical. You're, you're right, they are very, the Western armies especially are very similar to each other. The French and the English and the German and Spanish uh, armies aren't that different from each other, though they do have a few unique units and they have different emphases. You know, some are better in the late game, some have better cavalry, the English will have better archers. Uh, these sorts of things. And then, you know, in the late game, in the mid to late game, you have the Mongols show up and they are just very, very different. Or the, or the, the, the Timurids show up and they have, you know, their late game units are cannons on elephants and nobody else gets cannons on elephants. Um, that's your, that's your, 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 it's a glass cannon unit, but boy, it's fun uh, to watch them work. Um, so, you know, some of the Eastern armies have a, some funky stuff going on. The Egyptians as well with their uh, heavy, um, with their missile, missile cavalry, uh, missile camels, which are fun and fast. So there's, the variety is really more of an east-west type thing, and the eastern groups are, because they're also culturally different, are quite distinct from each other. Uh, but within the western groups, you do have, you know, your special units. You get the Spanish Jeanette and the German super heavy sausage Teutonic Connect. Knight, I think. Teutonic Knight or Sausage Connect or something. Um, they have, they have, they're really big in infantry and like, but they're a late game power on like really heavy uh, armor, and it's kind of that's where the diversity really starts to happen is in the late game. You've got to you don't really see it until you get there, I think, because the early game. Um, is everybody's feeling, you know, peasants and militia and a few cavalry. And then you get the money and you upgrade uh, your buildings and the fun stuff starts coming out, especially if you complete missions to get guilds. Um, you know, each group has you complete missions and you get guilds and the guilds can provide either financial assets or give you special access to special units. Um and that's that's a fun thing, you know. It's a way to make the missions. It, it's mission heavy. The missions were introduced, I think. In uh, did first medieval have missions? I know Rome. No, did. I think missions were entirely uh, new with Rome. Yeah, it was Senate. like the Senate were, was the, the first yeah. time that happened. Yeah. In medieval, you get missions from a bunch of different groups. A pope can give you a mission, or merchants can give you a mission, and they have. Different rewards, you have to choose between them, and they're not always possible. Uh, I was playing a game as England uh, a couple weeks ago, and the Pope's mission was make peace with France or I will excommunicate you. Which sounds great, but the French would not accept my offers of peace. So I just sat there and waited to get excommunicated. That's a problem. 
I guess I should have maybe moved out of Paris, but I sacrificed <laughs> all that blood for it. So I wasn't going to be giving up Paris in a deal for peace. Um, but, you know, access to, you know, all these rewards and the guilds, which had special units with more diversity, um, is kind of neat. Um, there's there is a lot of variety in the game if you can get past how identical everything looks and plays in the early game. And I think that's a problem for the game as far as um, its reputation and its replayability is for the matter, if you're playing, say, Rome, for example, playing early Gaul is very different from playing early Rome or early Carthage. There's already some variety um, and distinction between them, both in units and in setting and strategic problems. In Medieval 2, because not only all the units are very similar, they both pretty much have the same starting point. There's a rebel nearby, and you've got to take out that rebel, or that really weak power, or something. There's so many stupid rebels uh, in this game. And so no matter who you're playing, uh, for the Western powers, it all feels very identical when you start out in a way that I think compares poorly to a game like Rome. But then Rome had the issue where Rome's end game was not impressive. Uh, and that's the one thing that medieval really improves on. Because I kind of feel like a lot of the time in, in Rome, you just get to a point and it's like, eh, maybe I'll just finish the game now and just start a new game. Uh, I never could have felt compelled to stick it out as often as I did in medieval, where it transforms into an entirely new game all of your plans could just fall apart. Uh, and where it was a foregone conclusion uh, in Rome more often than not. Now, I disagree there. Yeah? I think that, you know, the, and I think that the, I think the end game in Rome was its strongest point where you, yeah, you're great and you're powerful, but now you've got to fight against your friends. And the civil war happens and you have to fight against people who are just as strong as you generally uh, or aren't that weak compared to you, plus you still have all these foreign powers trying to take you down. The Medieval 2 campaign, it's you win by conquering all of these territories and a few targets, uh, which are important depending on which nation or which culture you're playing. Like For some places, Rome's important, for others, Jerusalem's important, what have you. But it's just counting down the number of territories. So you're just, oh, I'm at 40 and I've got to take five more. Well, do I really need to take five more? And then to slow you down, what the Total War AI does is it always makes sure you're fighting two enemies. It never lets you... There's no breathing space. When you get certain, when you get strong enough, uh, the computer makes sure you're always at war with nuisances more than anything else uh, on your borders. Um, and that, in the late game, got really, really frustrating for me because I understand wanting to slow down the snowball effect, but sometimes I just want to stop and pause and catch my breath instead of fighting, you know, pissant Spain and and uh, Germany the dull because my French are just starting to kick some ass and they have to fight the Turks now. But, oh no, we got to give you more distractions. And I thought that was, that was that's always been a problem for the Total War games, but I think it's more of a nuisance in a game where your target is capture the most territories, including these cities. Well, I am... I'm I'm very conflicted because uh, so I think my issues with I think Rome has the it has a wonderful theoretical end game and if the other Roman factions like teched up properly it, it would have been uh, magnificent 
um, rather than just sort of the the ass whipping it, it often turned turned out to be. But Medieval Two definitely is a game that uh, throws a lot of crappy little roadblocks uh, at you. And for instance, I don't remember I or I had forgotten uh, how much of this game you spend fighting down little po- po- fighting little pockets of rebels. Like they they just they pop up like mushrooms and. You need armies basically patrolling the interior of your kingdom, just like playing whack-a-mole with these things, uh, but before they sort of uh, you know snowball and become a real issue. So there's there's a lot of just like policing internally. Uh, that you know, even when you're you've got a pretty well-run empire, these little these little rebel groups uh, still pop up. And then, yeah, you 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 can't. There, there's not much of a diplomatic game to speak of when. The inevitable outcome is that you're always going to be fighting a two-front war um, in, in one one form or another. On the other hand, like, Medieval 2 gave me the single best endgame I've ever had in a Total War game. Like, Jerusalem is really far from Western Europe. Like, super far. And... I think something this this game does a really good job of of doing is making it feel like you're trying to project power across the entire planet. You know what I mean? Like you are so far from your bases of strength uh, when you, when your armies get out there. It is so hard to sustain an offensive. Um, and I remember, like in in this game I played as Britain, uh, I had. You know, I I had really kicked a lot of ass in Europe. I'd conquered France, conquered Spain. Um, I think I was fighting in Italy and uh, had subjugated parts of, like, Western Germany. So things were going well. I had everything I needed until I realized that uh, the, 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 the timer was rapidly counting down. And I needed to capture Jerusalem, like, yesterday. And so I had to basically, like gather up all my best troops and launch like three stacks of like elite units blindly into Jerusalem, just like completely blind landing. Um, and what I found when I got there was just massive stacks of enemies. Like I think there were two different factions fighting there. Both had huge armies. Uh, they're fighting each other a little bit, but they were both fighting me and my armies land there. And Jerusalem, I don't think, is on the coast. Like, I think you have to march inland a little bit to go to go get it uh, in this game. And so, the the end of <laughs> the the end of Medieval Two for me in my in my memory is this amazing series of like it's like um, like Anabasis in reverse almost. Like, it is this tremendous series of uh, of battles as these as these British armies, which are super strong are steadily getting whittled down as the opposition stiffens and they approach uh, Jerusalem. I guess maybe Ender's Game is the better uh, is, is the better analogy. And so literally, like, on I think the literal last turn of the game, maybe the next to last turn of the game, um, I've got a depleted British army down to two stacks, every unit's a little battered, um, doing the city assault on Jerusalem. And just bloody street fighting through through the city, and I narrowly take it. Like we're talking, like it's it, by the end of that battle, everyone is routed and killed. 
it's like literally down to I think like three British units still standing and like um, you know two two enemy units. They come into the central square. I flank them, hit them. They rout. I win the battle, and the game ends. And that's probably the best total war ending I've ever had. And I've never figured out like. I don't think the game was engineered to do anything like that. I think I just kind of got lucky with the way the victory condition works. Um, but I, I, at the same time, like I had that experience, whereas like a lot of Rome toward this end of the game starts to feel like just a mopping up action, a really long mopping up action. Medieval, I will say, did tend to, for me at least, uh, keep worthy enemies in the field. Uh, pretty much till the end, which which I always appreciated. Yeah, I never I never felt like I was just going through the motions. There was always this sense that I needed to stay alert, and the the, the challenge was maintained throughout. Even though uh, I think we'll all agree that AI is uh, a little bit iffy. Um, I think with it, it it really has the same. AI problems as, as Rome did, really. Uh, oh, but yeah. I think it was almost exacerbated by the fact that there's, especially on the campaign map, there's so much more for the AI to try and get to grips with. Uh, there's a lot more, there are a lot more ways to, to cock up uh, managing your empire and, and kind of building up your, your cities and, and fortresses uh, than there was in, in the original Rome. Oh, I... I... I don't know. I think the a but the AI was was hamstrung in the original Rome by the fact that so many aren't in the right tech group to have viable mm-hmm. like mid and late game armies. Uh, that like rapidly, the AI just was unable to keep up, and their cities were just like corruption infested hell holes. Um, I don't know that. I don't know. I, like I feel like the AI played this game a little moderately more strongly. At least the setup is is a little more AI friendly. Uh, but you, you did point to something that I, that I do want to get to. I think this is the first game where Rome starts forcing you to choose how to evolve settlements. Like, I in all the previous games, I think pretty much everything could grow. Like everything was kind of on a single track. Um, yeah, this was this was definitely the first one where like city special or specialization of settlements became uh, the norm. Yeah, and it's a little coarse. Uh, it's you know, is it a city or a fortress? But at the same time, like it, it, it imposes this this extra element, right? Of like, where do you need your fortresses both to serve as strong points for your empire, but also they're going to be your best recruiting grounds for professional armies. Um, it, it's an interesting. It adds an interesting new wrinkle uh, to to the game, as you know, as as you consider how you want this empire to expand and, and what you're building out towards, uh, which is is kind of nifty um and it, you know obviously it it it, it largely works because it's it's kind of stuck with the uh series to to date in in one form or another uh, although it's it's not until rome you see a real sea change in how uh settlements are evolved R- you could, it's really it, it's really a, in the early game these choices really really matter because the cities provide money which is in such short supply if you want to build a really huge army in the early going, you know, you're not going to make money ransoming off the people you choose not to execute, after all. 
uh, there's just not enough money there. And they have, you know, merchants who are kind of useless uh, in the early game. Um, they're kind of useless in general. We can talk about agents and how much I hate them later. But they're, you want to build up an army fast. Armies are expensive. So you need to decide how many forts you actually need. Can you get away with just a couple? Is there one that's in a safe area that you can turn into a city? Because a city will get you more money. Um, it has access to better economic buildings. So that's a long-term thing. You just don't just automatically convert it and then you're rolling in gold. It's an investment down the road, uh, five, six turns. So all, there's a lot of this early to mid-game planning over your finances versus your defenses. Can you afford your defense spending is what it comes down to. And how do you make that defense budget pay? So it's it was something I'd forgotten entirely that this was in the game. It was introduced this early. And it was kind of a shocker, especially when you remember that by default, you can turn this off, but by default, unless a city has a character there, it's automated. You can turn that you can turn that off uh, for micromanagement, but you know by default, by the intentional design, um, the city will decide what to build, uh, what kind of units to build when it has units available, what kind of structures based on the priorities you set for it, um, which is kind of interesting because we all know that virtual viceroys are very rarely effective or intelligent. Uh, so to make this the default option instead of um, something you can turn on if you want to, that's that's a gutsy choice uh, for the design to have two kinds of settlements and the default being the AI will run these for you unless you move a person there. Uh, you know, with all of these generals that you actually need in the battlefield because, you know, they're generally pretty good and useful out there. Um, so I always thought that was an Bit of that was a really gutsy design move in a lot of ways because it does it changed settlement management in a very very dramatic way. Um, I think they've refined it in a better, more interesting manner now. Uh, but it was it was interesting to go back and see where all this started. And they gave the the generals who would become governors when uh, stuck in a in a settlement um, a lot of traits to kind of make it much more beneficial to actually place one there than just let the AI kind of automate. Because, uh, I mean, if you just look at the very beginning, you've got, uh, I think, two, usually like two or three generals who have quite a long list of, of traits and things like that. And they can, you know, evolve over time as well. Um, and some of them obviously affect battle, but some of them are also kind of relevant when managing a settlement. And that obviously stuck... Does, you know, that's become a kind of major component of the series. Does it kind of feel, though, like traits and generals were a little more fun back in this day? Like, there is so much. If you open a veteran governor or general's panel, there is such a list of little details about this dude. And I find it kind of entertaining, like the, the portraits that are painted uh, throughout these, right? Like, you know, you, you have a character with like, you know, moderate top line piety, but then secretly there's there's all these there there's all these little personality quirks that basically mean they're like outwardly pious, but secretly like might actually be atheists. Um, <laughs> definitely like prefer gambling and carousing to to the church. <laughs> uh, the, you know, there's there's such a there's a lot of character to it. But 
more to the point, I feel like your commanders in this game assume a heroic dimension that increasingly the Total War games have started to get away from. Like, to this game, you could have... It wasn't that hard to, like, cultivate really high-ranking generals with, like, legendary statistics who their mere presence on the battlefield was worth, you know, several units worth of troops, right? Like, they they definitely, like, skewed the odds pretty significantly. And you could feel it, right? Like, you know, units... Armies under shaky commanders would fold up uh, like a house of cards, whereas, you know, even a small force under an elite general just was almost unbreakable and could shatter enemy units. And maybe it's a little, maybe, maybe it's too volatile. Maybe they got away from this for, for good reasons. But I do kind of like the idea that in Medieval 2, I feel like in some ways it's the last Total War game where I had personal relationships with my commanders. Where, like, you know, there was my there were there was my starting there was my starting lineup of generals that I put in the field, and I knew those were the best guys available, and I like I knew their names and I knew what they were good at, and you could feel what they were achieving and what those stats actually meant, and I feel like ever since this game, the role of the general is still important, but it just doesn't feel like. It's as important, or the or the game is built to, or the or the or the game is not built to let you cultivate generals the same way, um, and they don't seem to have quite as much character. But that's just that's just how it feels. Like playing this game now, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember how attached I got to these guys, and I remember like what big personalities they had in addition to those stats. And I'm not sure it's been that way since. I'd agree if we'd recorded this before Warhammer. Now, Warhammer is a different thing. Yeah, it's the hero unit. Hero units are an entirely different beast. They are, but I mean, they're still. That's the the role is still the same role. It's these are the the army leaders, um, and yeah, but they're but they're but they're also kind of invincible. Yes, and, the, and they're picking classes. Which, the, the classes have abilities that that matter a great deal. But do they have? Right. Are the characters the same way? I've, you played a lot more Warhammer than I have, so like. You know, I feel that because they have their own stories as well, and it helps that they're also part of the the lore. There's lore behind this kind of universe that a lot of people are really invested in, um, which I think helps. And also, you've got to remember the quests. They have like personal quests to get special uh, armor and weapons, and they have like they have steeds with names and grudges and history. They have way more personality than the generals in, in Medieval 2. Uh, I think they have to, because it's a very, as, as Troy said, they, they're very, very different. Uh, but yeah, they, you, I've developed attachments to them a lot more easily um, than I did with the ones in Medieval 2. Although I will agree that Medieval 2, the generals feel way more important uh, than they did in any of the games up until Warhammer. But it's like a completely different uh, situation there. Uh, you can't really play that game without, you know, really taking care of your, of your generals. Right. Because they can, with can like a spell, how... they can change everything, you know? Can we talk about how no one identifies or cares about their stupid princesses? <laughs> 
how this game had the this is the bloat of agents. Oh I think this God. is the high point of agents. And there are so many of them and I don't care about any of them. Like do we need priests and inquisitors? Do we need princesses and diplomats? Do we need merchants at all? And I'm just wondering what they were thinking. And there's assassins. What were they thinking in having all of these agents? And this is something that, you know, that it's still a problem in Rome, too. But here, this, I think, was the point where it was just ludicrous. And I have to, I have to think that they thought it was a mistake having, you know, six or seven different kinds of agents when really you only need one, maybe. Um, and it's got to be a ninja. Yeah, it's... But, I have been struck by how many of these little bastards are running around the map. And and so many game-critical actions are channeled through them, too, right? Like, okay, you need to interact. You, you need to do diplomacy with so-and-so. All right, well, where's the nearest city? Okay, cool. Now, where's the nearest agent to that city? Oh, God, wait, that agent's all the way across the map. So do I just want to recruit another agent? Do I really want another one of these guys running around? Oh, guess I better. Like... There are so many little dudes running around doing stuff in this game. Uh, yeah, I, like I'm not sure I would say this is the high point though, like because Napoleon, well, so Napoleon in his, in his expansion, uh, the Iberian expansion, starts trying to get at asymmetric warfare and like guerrilla warfare via agents and succeeds to a debatable extent. Um, but I feel like Agent Bloat has been a part of the story well, pretty much ever since this game. Um, maybe it's starting to trim down a little bit in the more recent releases, but uh, yeah, there, there sure are a lot of different uh, named characters doing dubiously effective things. Is there anything worse than sending an agent all the way from, you know, London to Constantinople, gets there, and dies. <laughs> uh, I st- but we're still in the era where we get the um, the little the videos, the little movies, which I loved. I was yes. so glad to see them. I'm yes. so happy. And they're um, so dumb, but they're, good. They're, they're, they're funny, aren't they? Like the, there's the one with the the spy infiltrating the city, and he's in the wagon in the sack, and he almost gets caught. And then when he actually gets out of the wagon, he's still in the sack, jumping around. It's brilliant. Um, but you know, when you've seen that one once, you're like, oh Jesus. But you can you can take a box, it means you never have to see it again. Was Shogun 2 the last time we had them? because uh, I feel like I feel like Shogun 2 did have them, right? With I like think ninjas Shogun yeah. sneaking yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah, I'm quite sure Shogun 2 I did think, because it was one of the best parts of the original show. Yeah, so I think that was the last time that we had them, but I, I didn't quite realise how much I missed them. Things like that and the um the battle speeches as well, which are amazing. Um, these little touches. But yeah, I, I, I felt that the agent bloat was really annoying as well. Just seeing, it's like sending princesses on these journeys like across the planet just to get shot down the moment they arrive. Um, yeah, it just felt like a giant waste of time. But they still, I don't think getting rid of, of all agents is the, the solution. I think they have a role. And especially, I think, Troy, you, you were talking about earlier how sieges can go on for a long time and they're expensive and kind of yep. a pain in the ass. Um, so having things like a, a spy in a city opening the gates and, and stuff like that, that's like imperative. Uh, it really can be very handy. But you, you don't need 
How many agents were there anyway? There's just there's too many. But yeah, you need diplomats, merchants, priests, inquisitors, princesses. princesses. I think that's that's it. I think I hope. Yeah. What's the difference between a priest and the cardinal? Because those are both in the game. Cardinals are more powerful, right? Or are, are cardinals the inquisitors? I don't know. It's all yeah, I, just because I don't stupid. think there's an inquisitor. Um, right. Yeah, it is really confusing. Well, no, there's certainly an inquisitor because so there's a guy sneaking around. Putting all my inquisiting all of my people. <laughs> See, it gets really confusing. Um, but yeah, they should just have one and just call it agent. <laughs> Wait, I so forget. Like, hang yeah, on. Like, so... wouldn't other factions send inquisitors into your districts and screw them up? I feel like that was a thing you'd encounter. There was a Scottish. I think it was a Scot. It might have been a Scottish inquisitor. Might have been a French inquisitor, running off through northern England, putting all of my sons on trial. Putting my priests on trial, and I only got one of them, because um, I was such a pious, pious family. But it's just so annoying. It's like, the things are going great, you're marching towards the siege. Oh, sorry, your general's been put on trial for this is, worshipping witches yeah, the, or something, and it's like, oh my god. But isn't there, there's, yeah, there's actually, <laughs> there's four religious agents. You get your priest, your cardinal, your inquisitor, and your grand inquisitor. <laughs> oh my god. See, there's no need for any of those. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got... Yeah, Maybe priests, Because I'm looking but... at the list now. It's princesses, emissaries, assassins, spies, and four religious agents. <laughs> so I mean, I religion think... is a really big part of the game. I get why if there's any category there'd be more agents, it would be that. But still, that's just overkill. But you don't. You don't need. You don't need two inquisitors. No. <laughs> you don't need. You don't need any inquisitors. It's not like you know, the Middle Ages was full of people accusing each other of you know Satanism. This is this is this is Crusader kings, and this is you know it's a completely unnecessary uh, mechanic that adds no flavor and is just so annoying. And like, why is there a princess? Because the princess kind of does stuff. That's basically the same as a spy, but you think also could easily, if she was designed properly, to be an emissary. Um, but they've got princesses, well, emissaries, like she, and spies because she just kind of gathers information and forges a lot. She, she's an emissary. Well, I mean, yeah. she, she can do, yeah, she can do diplomatic stuff, yeah. and also she gives you. She continues the family line. Yeah, so she's like. But then what? A diplomat and but, someone that you marry off. And once she's married, she stops being an agent, right? Yeah. But do you have to use her to marry herself, right? Like, does she have to go out and, like, strike the marriage deal? Or... No, that's, a, that's no. an emissary. Ugh. You, 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 you can be approached, you know, people can say a marriage has been arranged between Esmeralda and Quasimodo, and then that's all set up. No, yeah, you can, um, you can request, you use, so basically, you would take your princess, you would march her into a foreign city, and you'd be like, here's my princess, do you want to marry her? And that's how it works. Yeah. Or they, or, 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 or they can come to you. Um, but yeah, because that's how it was. You, you'd take your daughter from city to city, ringing the bell, saying, marry my sweetie, marry my sweetie, and whoever would come out, you'd build an alliance. That's how it was. Historically accurate. Uh, yeah. So, I think something else that goes on with the agents, and I'm not sure if the game has ever solved this, is that, so if you don't play the agent game, though, 
There's a chance that some enemy faction is going to end up with some ridiculously powerful agent that you just can never counter. Um, and that's been, like, that started becoming excruciating in Rome 2, uh, where, like, the elite uh, assassin-type character that can, like, kill people, but also can just, like, stop armies in their tracks. Like, suddenly they're so high level, they're just kind of killing your best unit characters at will and, like, stopping your armies, and you can't get anything done. And because you don't have anyone of that skill tier to go counter them, you basically just have to, like, wait out this bastard's, like, lifespan or hope he gets really unlucky, uh, which has always been an issue ever since agents really showed up, uh, like, in this game, where you can have the rogue inquisitor just tearing through your, uh, tearing through your empire that you're just kind of powerless to stop uh, unless you send eight, like, assassins around, uh, you know, sharpening their, their daggers on nameless captains uh until they get good enough to start killing uh it's real very gamey isn't it it's like great it's the grind that you've got to do it's the and worst grind it's a terrible they, I grind. Mean, they figured out how to solve it with with warhammer where you can actually you attach it to the army they become an actual unit that you use and then they level up that way and then you can add that you can it doesn't matter if you've used them exclusively in combat you can still upgrade their agent tree as well which is quite neat. Yeah. So really, you, you know, you can just use them however you want, and as long as they're attached to an army, they'll they'll keep leveling up. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the expansions because I never played them much. Uh, I've only just started playing the Britannia expansion uh, with this with this revisit, and I'm surprised how much I'm enjoying it. Um, the the armies do feel different in Britannia in a way they don't in in the vanilla game. Uh, but I haven't done much with with the with the other games, and uh, I'm curious, like, what you guys have been sort of digging into uh, with this with revisiting medieval right now. You can throw beehives at people. That's like, that's in the American campaign game. and in the game. Uh, yeah, that, I I'll never forget that. Um, and I've you know I've never explored whether this is historically accurate or not because I don't want to be disappointed. Uh, did, did the Aztecs throw bees at people? I really hope that they did. Um, the America's campaign in general is the, is the strangest one, I think. Um, but it's also it's it's really it's really interesting in the way that you, if you're playing as the the Spanish coming into this new world and having such superior technology and none of the numbers to support yourself. Um, and it becomes this it's like a game of survival um and and kind of making allegiances um it's pretty cool but i i think i mentioned before that the britannia campaign's my favorite because it gives attention to scotland um i even think for the promotional images and stuff it was all uh, william wallace and and kind of blue face um kind of woad coloring and stuff like that uh, it was time that people recognized how wonderful Scotland is. <laughs> um, I dabbled with the Crusades uh, campaign, which is, you know, kind of fun. It's your the Catholics are going to get their ass kicked pretty heavily. They've got some really, really good staying power, but, you know, they're outnumbered uh, by people who really hate them. And they're divided, you know, Jerusalem and Antioch. Um, they're the two big Christian powers. 
and it's a pretty good good sized map. It covers everything from Turkey down to Egypt, and you know, a good chunk of uh, the Near East. And it's it plays, I think, a lot like a traditional medieval game, but I think it's a good microcosm. And it, like the other, and like the other campaigns, it does add a little bit more variety that you wouldn't get, that you don't get or see in the in the core campaign. Um, the campaigns, the the campaign expansions, I think, do have quite a bit more, you know, variety and interesting stuff going on. I think the Americas is my favorite because it is, you know, numbers versus tech, and it's kind of fun um, to try to make that work. See if you can do, see if you can outdo Pizarro and um, have just a few hundred men take out thousands and thousands. Um, I, I always like those last stand type scenarios in games. Um, generally you will be a lot less successful than Pizarro because the AI is not as afraid of loud noises or horses as the historic uh, uh, first peoples were. But I think it's a, I think it's a very fun, very interesting campaign. Um, and I think it's probably the most interesting one. I haven't tried the Teutonic uh, campaign, um, which I don't know if it's just me finding that entire setting dull or I just haven't had... I just haven't had the time or the interest in revisiting it, though I expect it has lots of really neat Northern European stuff going on. So the other thing I've been tucking into a little bit is uh, the stainless steel mod, which adds a lot of stuff uh, to to medieval and it fleshes out a lot of a lot of corners of that game world. Plus, it allows you to start introducing lots of fan mods uh, that can really introduce some uh, pretty radically different mechanics, uh, different versions of the AI, uh, things like uh, you know logistri- logistics and army supply uh, and attrition and stuff like that. But I'm playing the the, the pretty vanilla uh, stainless steel mod, which I, I think might just be mostly giving it a you know, a, a graphics pass uh, and and fleshing out some of the uh, non like European uh, factions, but it's it's also pretty cool. Uh, it's it's a pretty nice upgrade over uh, vanilla medieval, and it's it's not that it's not that hard to to install. Uh, you know, you just look up stainless steel, and you go to mod DB, and uh, you know you install. 6.3 and then the 6.4 patch then use the launcher and uh you're, you're pretty much golden but it's a it's it's a pretty cool update to to medieval and i think might be my preferred way to play the uh the vanilla game at this point uh the the, the grand campaign and then for you know other stuff i've got the got the expansions but you know with with, with that mod it, it it makes medieval to a surprisingly modern feeling uh total war game in in some ways, you're still you're still saddled with a lot of the, uh, you know, ancient Rome two AI, but uh, not AI, but uh, UI, but still, I, I I give it a I give it a pretty strong recommendation if you're if you're looking to dig back into medieval or just want to maybe address some of the problems of that uh, very that very samey feeling starting game in in medieval two, but either way, I think I, I've been really pleasantly surprised by how enjoyable. Uh, this game still is, and I think it. I I think it deserves. It's easy to understand why it was overshadowed. Rome was a sea change in the series, 
medieval comes out and didn't we just have a medieval game and then empire is is another pretty radical change uh for the series um well empire comes after shogun 2 doesn't it doesn't it no uh, empire I'm, was before em, it went empire napoleon then Sh- and it was almost felt like it's all blurs shogun now. 2 was like a sequel to napoleon really because it yeah. took a lot of those that's right focused that's right. ideas because it was good. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was like, hey, why yeah. don't we do this and make it not suck? <laughs> They've solved it. They've fixed Total War. But yeah, so like Medieval just ends up in this like valley between like two major overhauls of of Total War and what a Total War game is and can be. Um, and it feels a little bit redundant after Medieval 1, I think, in context. But I think looking back, it's one of your stronger efforts if you're just looking for that, like, you know, meat and potatoes uh total war experience like medieval 2 really delivers it in a way that in a lot in a lot of at a lot of times the series has struggled to has struggled to accomplish i think it helps that um it had i think it still does have the this the best modding community of all the the total war games because uh, you mentioned the stainless steel mod but i think you can't talk about medieval 2 mods without talking about something like third age uh, which is the the Lord of the Rings mod, which is a, a complete overhaul, and I was playing a little bit of that today, um, as uh, as Saruman and his um, Urukai, and it's still really fantastic. Um, it really, it I mean, they've recreated the entire map of of, of Middle Earth with uh, a mountain of factions and all these. Uh, discrete kind of special Lord of the Rings style mechanics. For instance, like you've got the the Palantir as well. So you've got the the, the magic of Lord of the Rings is actually involved, uh, and each faction feels incredibly distinct. Uh, but what's most impressive is just the amount of effort that's actually gone into reskinning it. It looks like an actual Lord of the Rings game. It doesn't feel like someone just took Total War and just gave it a, you know, a, a new bit of paint to make it look a little bit Lord of the Ringsy. This is an actual Lord of the Rings game. Um, however, I will say that it, it doesn't feel as uh, refreshing as it did after Warhammer. Having it, we can, yeah. we've already got an actual triple a professional fantasy total war uh and as amazing uh as as third age is it it doesn't really compare but we're also talking about something that was made by you know modders in their spare yeah. time over over years as well yeah it's uh medieval 2 definitely did have a a pretty long-running uh modding community i think there's also a there was an attempt to make to, to do a conversion mod to make medieval two into Rome again. Like I want to say, yeah, there was there, a really was. detailed Rome uh, campaign for medieval two, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, uh, I've it, it's been it's been nice to revisit this game, and uh, I think it it maybe deserves a little more respect within the uh, within the chronology of the series than, than it sometimes gets. A solid seven. <laughs> Oh, we got wow. so far. We got All right. so far. 
Well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and the host on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. This topic in particular was brought to you by our Patreon backers during our monthly topic vote. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, for Fraser and Rob, this is Rob Zachney saying, A seven? (laughs) Hey, you guys.